The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Question and answer. If God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting men's sins against them, how can we, having missed the mark and having no merit of our own, be so quick to so harshly condemn those caught in the homosexual lifestyle? I thought God loved mercy. Sexual sin, there are many varieties of sexual sin. Actually, recently I was watching an interview with uh, Peter Singer, who is the chair of bioethics at Princeton, who was seeking to justify bestiality uh, as a healthy and appropriate form of sexual expression for human beings in our culture. Um, So there are all manner of uh, forms of sexual sin that are apparent in our culture and that were there and present in the first century in uh, in the life of the early church. In fact, ancient Rome, ancient Greece were homoerotic cultures. Homosexual acts were rite of passage for many uh, upper-middle-class males. It was soaked in that kind of culture. The gospel came into it and spoke with clarity about the issue. So we need to distinguish between uh, speaking clearly with faithfulness, with biblical clarity about uh, what God has ordained for our life, for our good, for our blessing in terms of sexuality. Uh, That's what we must defend. The gospel... Uh, is relevant to adulterers, fornicators, thieves, uh, as well as homosexuals. It's appropriate for all of us. It's relevant for all of us. So I think the most important thing when when dealing with the issue of homosexuality is to discuss the issue of identity. What is it that defines me as a human being? What we tend to find with the homosexual lobby, the homosexual community that has become more aggressive in our time is that they want to make that a mark of human identity. Uh, that it defines them. While Scripture says that God is the image of God that defines us. And uh, he made us, and he knows what it is that... uh, He knows the way in which he requires us to live for our blessing and for our good. And so the homosexual needs to be a recipient uh, of of the preaching of the gospel, needs to be welcome to hear the preaching of the gospel, but the Christian is not to compromise the ethical standards of God's word, which are every word available to the, in the Greek language for the issue of homosexuality is used in the New Testament to condemn its practice. And uh, as we heard in the last session, the family is basic to culture, to Christian culture, to biblical culture. It's basic to a healthy culture anywhere, even in Babylon. And we are increasingly in Babylon, so we have to uphold and defend the family as God's ideal, as God's best, and heterosexual marriage as God's ordained place for sexual relationships. To say that is not to condemn or to hostile, in a hostile fashion, condemn and castigate homosexuals. They're sinners like the rest of us. They need Christ like the rest of us. They need the gospel like the rest of us. And uh, I believe, actually, that, though, that we are most dishonest and we are most damaging to the homosexual, not when we speak the truth in love about it, not when we are faithful to the word of God in our churches, but when, as Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 13, that great passage about love, says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. We're not being loving when we water down what God's word says about these issues. 
And if we invoke any sort of cultural argument about it, then really what we've done is we've become relativists. And at that point, well, we can jettison biblical ethics full stop. It's open season. There are no ethical norms at that point. We have to appreciate the radical revolution that is now taking place in our society by affirming homosexual marriage and relationships. 50, 60 years ago, it was a criminal offense. Today, teachers are told that it's a, it's a, it's a good thing to take elementary school students to the gay parade in Toronto in 60 years. That's a revolution, and it's a revolution away from the family. It can only be destructive for our society. That's not unloving. That's not condemning. That's seeking the good of the city. And we can still seek the good of the homosexual in the gospel as well as condemning their lifestyle in the same way that as a pastor I will exercise with the elders church discipline on somebody who's committing adultery, not because I don't... I can to condemn that person in self-righteousness, but for their good. Let me just add a couple of footnotes. One would being that you need to understand that, that homosexual behavior is tethered to a worldview of a homo cosmology. It's ultimately a denial of a creature-creator distinction. And so, as Joe's saying, if you begin to kind of mollify and not make that a sharp beacon, you're ultimately at war against the creator because that's what this embodies a joining of opposites and, and all these sorts of things. So there's a big worldview issue there that's, that I think should motivate and animate it. That said, in about um, five hours' time, uh, two of my sons will be playing a championship, state championship football game. They are coached by an entire coaching staff of lesbians, only one in the States. These, these women know football better than many men, and now, here's the point there. So there's not a harshness or an unloving or a, anything like that, but you need to be in a position like Dr. Van Til used to teach to buy the next cup of coffee. You need to have sufficient relationship, and the only way you can do that is to understand the gospel says you're more like, you know, that person, so to speak, than you dislike them. And if you have that sort of, of humility... Uh, and relationally, you continue to dwell with it. So people say, oh, you're at the Alliance Defense Fund. You guys hate homosexuals. Well, that's just not true. And as a matter of fact, the person who says that to me, I say, well, how many did you interact with today? Well, uh, uh, no, I say, I interact with homosexuals all the time. Many are friends without compromise. That's the issue because we need to be the messengers of the, the good news. But the good news is only good if it redeems and rescues from um, sin. So all I'm saying is that you've got to have those relationships with those people in order to bring them that good news. Terrific answers, except the part about knowing more about football. <clears throat> For those of us who have teenagers, Joe, this has got your name on it, but for those of us who have teenagers and children, what are the one or two key things to help parents like me to combat the culture permeating our children? Music, television, cultural attitudes, etc. Well, as a uh, father of five living children, I can just tell you kind of what we do. One thing Francis Schaeffer said I think is really wise. He said, worldviews are more often caught than taught. There's always a worldview. There's no neutrality out there. 
And so, uh, and that's true in the public square, and it's true in our worldviews. So we need to be more conspicuous and intentional in assisting our teens to um, begin to understand and develop discernment, to cultivate wisdom. That doesn't mean you shield them in some um, hermetically sealed tube and say, I'm not going to let the culture affect you. That, that doesn't do it. But you have to uh, coax them and you have to coach them through these kinds of issues. There are some specialty training things you can send them to, a Worldview Academy, Summit Ministries, and others that will help give them the tools. But it's more of a day-to-day Deuteronomy 6 sort of thing, pointing things out. For example, the television watching is very not very much good stuff on TV, but it doesn't mean we eschew it completely. So if I'll sit down with a, a film or something, but I'll do it actively with the changer in my hand, with a pause button on, and then say, what was the assumptive language there? What were they trying to get you to understand? What inferences are you drawing? Do you think that's appropriate humor? And you begin to make them active doing that. The second thing I think you can do is to understand that the teenage years are really ages of opportunity. They don't, aren't necessarily horrible, oh, it's just bad, hormones are secreting, you know, and all that. But you can really just take it. I love it because boys become young men, daughters become young women. It's a great time to dialogue. Uh, practically think a structural thing. We always have family meals together. It's just a great time around the table uh, to sustenance. You know, it's interesting when, you know, Jesus taught the, taught the disciples, right? Rode to Emmaus and taught them the scriptures, showing them that everything pointed to him. But it was only when they sat down and broke bread that they recognized him. There's something there about how we dwell together as the way we're made that allows us to get to the heart of those issues. Um, let's see. Other worldview things. Um, well, I'll leave it at that. Really quick, I would just add to that, that Christian education, Christian schools, Christian high schools, my children in a Christian school, that's not taken as read by most Christians today that we should be thinking about Christian education. If your child is nine till three in a secular environment being in a nursery of humanism, which is what most of our modern schools are, Monday through Friday, and then we hope that the pastor or the Sunday school teacher will deprogram them in an hour and a half on a Sunday or less, I think we're optimistic, to say the least. I think we need to be thinking about Christian schools and reclaiming Christian uh, education, Christian education in this country. I think that's a huge one. So my children are in a Christian school. I agree about round the table. I also think that regularly we need to sit down with our children. And catechizing is not a dirty word. Teaching our children the faith, sitting down with the word of God uh, right now. And it can be a lot of fun. My kids love devotions night. It's something that they look forward to. They're excited about. Sometimes they're reminding me that it's tonight. Uh, and, uh, right, and recently we've been working through that marvelous movie, The Gospel of John, and going through it in stages and talking about it and discussing it and so on. So I think time with our children, you cannot replace the influence of a parent. So don't farm out and just think, well, I can farm out the education of my children to others. I think that's what Jeffrey is saying. We need to be, nobody replaces the influence of parents in the lives of children, especially teenagers. Don't just hand them over to a beanie hat wearing youth worker and think because he wears tats and listens to funky music that that is going to mean they're going to have a fantastic influence upon your child. They can have a positive influence if they're godly people as youth pastors, but they will not have the same influence that you can have. So don't think in terms of alienation from your teenager, 
But think about how the, the you know, scripture says that the hearts of the fathers will be turned towards the children, the children to their fathers. And that's the meaning of the Christian faith. That's what the Spirit of God does. If the gospel is not just about saving souls, then how would you uh, define the gospel? Um, just a footnote, my first two sons were graduated from a, a classical Christian school. My second two sons go to a charter school that's um, great tradition, Western tradition. It just so happens that the headmaster, in an undiscerning moment, hired the lesbians to coach football. It's just interesting. Uh, the gospel. The gospel is... Yeah, go figure. Um, the gospel is, is the good news, the announcement that the king has come in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Textually, that's what it is, both predictively in the Old Testament, and that's how it's used in the New Testament as well. We have a reductionism that's based upon revivalism and individuality as opposed to God, though he does, of course, save individual souls. Thank him for doing that. But it's not limited to that. The gospel, the good news is that the king has come in the work and person of Jesus Christ. And the implications of that versus Jesus came to die for my sins is very different. I would, as a footnote to that, interestingly, the covenant, the new covenant, is not the cross. A lot of people think they confuse the covenantal language of Scripture, and they think, well, the new covenant is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is the means of the new covenant. It's the covenant which is ratified by his blood. The new covenant is given to us in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, which is God's law is going to be written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come and live in us and conform us to the will and purposes of God. That's the new covenant. The cross is the means by which the covenant is established. You can hold on to that. Go ahead. He hasn't got anything to say. Okay, uh, can you speak to the emergent church? You're not allowed to do that because we—it's not a discussion. It's a—it's not—it's not a debate. It's a conversation. So they'd need to be here. Yeah. Can, can you start a conversation about the emergent church, and maybe just quickly on two, uh, just as to doctrine generally, and then as to mission. Yes. Um, no. Um, it is a very amorphous entity. It's hard to get our arms around it. But this I will tell you uh, very quickly. We are, it is a syncretic mo- uh, movement that is quickly abandoning any sense of evangelical underpinnings in terms of its doctrine. Give you an example. One of the leading Pied Pipers is a gentleman named Brian McLaren. He has since, uh, he talks about a uh, new kind of Christianity. Well, let me tell you, it's not new and it's not Christian. And I say that very seriously. It is utterly Gnostic and neo-pagan. He has embraced uh, uh, Ken Wilber's uh, seven steps of spiritual development kind of a thing where he says, this guy's a Buddhist, where he says that you know, Christianity is like tier three or four. But, of course, now Brian's on, you know, tier seven or, or six or seven. Um, so it's very dangerous, and there are no breaks on this thing. And so what it really is, it's a very uh, repackaging of pragmatism 
as to what works. They're saying they're doing something different. Let me give you an example. Brian McLaren says that the early church, particularly in, from Nicaea, 325, up through Chalcedon at 451, was steeped in Hellenism and was utterly rationalistic in Greek. And we need to, to cast off this rationalistic understanding and propositional truth. He's got it exactly wrong. Chalcedon, in particular, rejected Hellenism, catapulted syncretism, and got rid of it and had a distinctly Christian understanding, uh, not only of who Christ is, but the implications of his lordship. And so they're not reliable historically. And what you're finding is that if you peel away a lot of their teaching, well, I think John Frame who put it this way, these guys are just like the 19th century German liberals, but they're just not as smart. That's really what it is. It's the same Van Harnack stuff, it's uh, Schump, all this stuff. It's the same guys. It's the same teaching. It's German radical liberalism. That's a theological school, and it's it's quickly becoming not Christian. Most important thing in identifying that, I think, is the its view of the atonement increasingly. And now, as Jeffrey said, there are some people who would call themselves emergent who are simply trying to take a look, look at worship styles and those kinds of things. But from a, from a theological perspective, when you look at the leading lights of the movement, I would recommend, if you doubt any of this, just pick up uh, the uh, emergent manifesto of hope in, uh, is the subtext, subtitle, or the book that recently uh, McLaren has endorsed and is all over called The Justice Project. Now, these two books make it abundantly clear that what you are dealing with in the emergent church is a denial of the atonement of Christ, is uh, Unitarianism and liberalism just repackaged, absolutely, and Marxism repackaged in the name of social justice. Uh, and it's, uh, it's radically anti-family, um, and uh, even uh, Tony Campolo's wife in the Justice Project considers the homosexual rights, uh, marriage, all of those things, is a justice issue, which is why, Jeffrey said, we don't use the term social justice. We talk about public justice, but not social justice. Cultural Marxism is the, uh, the use of, uh, is, the, is the way in which uh, culture is destabilized to an anti-Christian liberal agenda imposed upon the culture to pave the way for a wider socialistic reform, which is about, and the kingdom of God in emergent thinking is equated with the redistribution of wealth. So it's economic redistribution is what justice actually is, and all the popular spirit of the age rights that are supposedly human rights today, many of which are actually just legislating sin as a right, whether it be prostitution, uh, abortion, all these issues. These are being made rights, and uh, this movement is supportive of these things. I, it's, it's appalling. Now, a, year, a few years ago, when, it, when the first early books were coming out, uh, Jeffrey mentioned McLaren's books, you know, a, a new kind of Christian and so on. There were a lot of evangelicals who were saying, well, it's just an interesting thing. It's kind of a narrative story structure to ask questions and so on. And I have to tell you, I said a number of years back that, the, the, that this was rank liberalism and it would show its true colors. If you pick up the Emergent Manifesto, you will see that that is the true character of what is behind this. And uh, I would strongly urge you to steer a very, actually, first inform yourself. Don't just take it from us. Get, I hate to say, don't buy it, borrow it, right? <laughs> Buy, borrow the Emergent Manifesto, borrow the Justice Project, 
and read what they're actually saying, confirm what we are saying here. It's an abandonment of the gospel. The authority of scripture is gone. It is the spirit of the age is appointing the creed of our time. And uh, modern contemporary missiology, and that's my area of, special, area of specialism, is shot through with these assumptions now. So the kingdom of God is equated with uh, a neo-Marxist socialistic agenda for a utopian society, essentially. And it's about the denial of the sovereignty and lordship of Christ. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.